Welcome to the Critique Journal Club for September 2012. I'm Neil Orford and we'll have a look at what caught our eye in the literature in the last month. Let's start with the biggie. The Nice Sugar Study Investigators have published another article in the New England Journal of Medicine. So we have dealt with hyperglycemia in critical illness, but what about hypoglycemia? All the insulin trials, so that is both the Leuven or the Belgian Medical and Surgical Intensive Insulin Therapy Trials, SEPINET and NICE Sugar, reported an increase in severe hypoglycemia in the intensive therapy group. But to date, there has been no specific analysis of this issue. In this paper, the NICE Sugar investigators have analysed the relationship between moderate hypoglycemia, which was 2.3 to 3.9 millimoles per litre, severe hypoglycemia, less than 2.2 millimoles per litre, and risk of death. In case you've forgotten, the NICE Sugar trial was a 6,104 patient multi-centre RCT of intensive versus standard glycemic control in critically ill patients, and they reported an absolute increase in risk of death of 2.6% at 90 days in the intensive group. They did achieve treatment separation with a time-weighted blood glucose of 6.4 in the intensive group versus 8 in the control group, and that was odds ratios of 1.02 to 1.28. So they've performed a post-hoc analysis to look at hypoglycemia and reported that overall longer-stay patients, that is greater than 7 days in ICU, are more likely to have hypoglycemia than shorter-stay patients. Now, perhaps that's not surprising. Mortality was similar in this group. When they looked at it differently, they looked at patients who had hypoglycemia, either moderate or severe, and saw that they had a longer ICU stay than those that did not. They also received more insulin, parenteral nutrition, overall nutrition, they had lower mean blood glucose levels, a higher standard deviation for blood glucose level and more care directed towards blood glucose management. When they looked at mortality, mortality rates were higher in those who had hypoglycemia compared to those that did not. So in the no hypoglycemia group, there was a 23.5% mortality. In the moderate, it was 28.5%. And in the severe hypoglycemia group, 35.4%. The hazard ratio for death with adjustment for treatment assignment was also significantly increased in these groups. And this relationship remained after multivariate adjustment. The relationship between hypoglycemia and death did not differ between treatment groups in the study or the presence of diabetes, but it was stronger in post-operative patients and patients in whom hypoglycemia first occurred while not receiving insulin. So what can we learn from this? Well, for me, it's the following. The most simple lesson is that patients in whom hypoglycemia occurs in ICU have an increased risk of death. This is an association, not causation. Now, the authors provide a really interesting discussion about this. That is, that causation is suggested by the sort of temporal relationship, um, that there was an increase in death from a distributive shock, and that could be due to alterations in 
autonomic function, microcirculation, and immune function that occur with hypoglycemia. In contrast, patients without insulin therapy who are hypoglycemia did worse, and that suggests that hypoglycemia is a marker of sickness. And finally, it may well be that the relationship between hypoglycemia and length of stay, that is, it was more common in the long-stay patients, suggests that it's just the long-stay patients who are sicker. However, the multivariate analysis removed that and disputes that hypothesis. The third point for me is that contributing to hypoglycemia with intensive insulin control seems unwise, even if it isn't a causative relationship. So overall, a very interesting study, and I recommend that you go and read it. So let's continue the journey down memory lane, where the second study is the Activated Protein C and Septic Shock, a propensity-matched cohort study published in Critical Care Medicine. To try to understand what the authors are hoping to achieve in this study, let's go back over the history of APC briefly. So we should all be familiar with this, and if your memory is hazy, the authors remind you in the introduction. In 2001, the Prowess study reported a 6.1% decrease in 28-day mortality for septic shock patients who received APC versus placebo. In 2004, a 90-day mortality follow-up study from Prowess reported no difference in mortality, that is, that the benefit was lost by 90 days. In 2005, the ADDRESS study reported no mortality benefit with APC in patients with less severe sepsis. In 2007, the RESOLVE study of APC in paediatric septic shock was stopped for futility. In 2008, the Prowess shock study, a repeat adult APC in septic shock study, was undertaken to maintain licensing approval. In 2011, Lilly removed APC from the market following analysis of Prowess shock results. And 2012, Prowess shock was published. So the purpose of this retrospective propensity match database study is to try to answer the question, why the divergent results? So the database was the Cooperative Antimicrobial Therapy of Septic Shock, or CATS, database, which includes patient record data of consecutive patients with septic shock from 29 centres in Canada, the US and Saudi Arabia. They identified 8,670 patients with vasopressor-dependent septic shock between 1997 and 2007, looked at the usual variables and assessed 30-day mortality overall and stratified by Apache 2 quartile. Finally, they were able to propensity match 311 patients that received APC, and that was within 48 hours of shock, with 622 controls that did not, so a 2 to 1 propensity matching. Now, use of APC was associated with a significant reduction in 30-day mortality in the propensity-matched model. So that mortality was 40.8% versus 34.7%, the 95% confidence intervals 0.52 to 1. And they're similar results to the initial prowess study, but different to the remainder of them. So why is this? Well, the authors suggest the following reasons. Firstly, there has been a decreased mortality in septic shock in the international literature 
between 2001, when it was about 31% prowess, and 2011, when it's about 26.4% in prowess shock, resulting in decreased effect. They put this down to improved supportive care uh, and other issues such as improved time to appropriate antibiotics. Secondly, the off-study use of APC in prowess shock may have resulted in the patients most likely to benefit from it not being enrolled in the study and resulting in decreased effect. The evidence to support this is limited. So overall they tell us that APC did reduce mortality, but this improvement in mortality is lost over time due to other factors. That's an interesting theory and worth thinking about. Moving on to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and a study published in Critical Care Medicine by Jans and colleagues looks at the relationship between hyperoxia and increased mortality in patients treated with therapeutic hypothermia after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So there is a lot of interest in this area of optimal oxygenization in critically ill patients and whether or not hyperoxia is harmful. In cardiac arrest, the biological rationale includes an increased formation of reactive oxygen species, leading to lipid peroxidization of neuronal cells, impaired cerebral oxidative energy metabolism, and cerebral and myocardial vasoconstriction. In contrast, Therapeutic hypothermia may have a protective effect against reactive oxygen species, and the effect of all this in the clinical setting is unknown. So this retrospective analysis of a prospective cohort of 170 patients examined the association between increasing levels of PaO2 in the first 24 hours after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and outcomes in patients receiving therapeutic hypothermia. So survivors were more likely to be younger, have a ventricular arrhythmia, shorter time to return a spontaneous circulation, and lower median PaO2s. The maximum PaO2 in survivors was significantly lower at 198 millimetres of mercury than non-survivors, 254 millimetres of mercury, and that was in the first 24 hours. This relationship remained present after multivariate analysis, and when oxygen levels were divided into quartiles, there were worse outcomes in the lower two quartiles than the upper two quartiles. So this is hypothesis generating, as it provides a link between hyperoxia and poor outcome, but not causation. There are questions that remain, such as what is the potential of confounders, is maximal PO2 the right measure, or is it mean or time that you're above a certain level? The study by Eastwood uh, and colleagues showed the relationship between mortality and hyperoxia was lost after multivariable analysis, but they used AA gradient. So how are these differing results explained? Obviously, we are heading towards a large RCT to sort out this question of what is the best oxygen level in certain subgroups of intensive care patients? The next study, published in Critical Care Medicine by Tavares Ranzani et al., is the association between systemic corticosteroids and outcomes of intensive care unit acquired pneumonia. 
This prospective observational study provides a different look at the effects of steroids in critical illness, specifically the effects of steroids on VAP. So 316 patients were admitted to an ICU over a four-year period in whom duration of ventilation was greater than 48 hours and had clinical suspicion of VAP. Information was collected about their corticosteroid use or not, their pneumonia, their critical illness and inflammatory details. The 125 patients who had systemic steroids had a VAP 28-day mortality rate of 39%, while the non-steroid group had a VAP 28-day mortality rate of 28%. This remained significant after propensity-adjust multivariate analysis. Overall, the authors summarised that systemic corticosteroid use prior to ventilator-associated pneumonia was associated with reduced 28-day survival and a higher bacterial burden. Now, of course, this is single-centre, observational, there is residual confounding that we don't know about, and all these things mean that this is hypothesis-generating. So can steroids make you more likely to get VAP and have worse outcomes? Well, the answer is maybe. Well, let's go back to the New England Journal and back to glycemic control again. A two-centre prospective RCT study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at the outcome of tight glycemic control, which was 4.4 to 6.1, versus standard care in 980 children admitted to PICUs after cardiac surgery. So this is a different cohort. The points of interest, they achieved differences in insulin delivery and glucose control in the two groups. That is, they delivered the intervention and they found no difference in outcomes. They used continuous glucose monitoring and had a low incidence of hypoglycemia in the tight control group. They delivered a lot of parental nutrition as dextrose in children, and that resembles the Belgian intensive insulin therapy trials without any benefit. And finally, was it reasonable to repeat the trial in cardiac children? Well, there were retrospective studies suggesting harm from hyperglycemia and a high incidence of treatment-induced hypoglycemia in this population. So perhaps it was worth sorting this out. Overall, it's more evidence against intensive insulin therapy in critically ill humans, irrespective of age. In critical care medicine, a systematic review of the randomised trial evidence concerning probiotics in the critically ill suggests that in pooled data, probiotics were associated with reduced infectious complications and ventilator-associated pneumonia, but had no effect on mortality, length of stay, or diarrhea. And in subgroup analyses, there were no differences when they grouped probiotics by dose, species, or baseline mortality. So this is hypothesis generating and suggests we probably need more evidence looking at the role of probiotics in reducing infectious complications. Vitamin D is becoming an area of interest in critical care and a study published in Critical Care Medicine looked at the association of low serum 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels pre-ICU with resultant acute kidney injury. I found this study interesting for two reasons. 
Firstly, pre-ICU data is difficult to obtain because we don't know who's going to come into ICU. And they were able to look at vitamin D levels in the year prior to ICU in 2,075 patients. Secondly, patients with pre-ICU vitamin D insufficiency were more likely to have acute kidney injury or die compared to those patients who were vitamin D sufficient. So what does it mean? It may be that vitamin D status is a measure of wellness. We don't know why vitamin D testing was ordered, with 48% of the tests ordered in the 90-day prior to ICU admission, so there could be some selection bias there. Treating vitamin D deficiency prior to ICU, in ICU or after ICU may not be effective, and certainly that's been the experience in critical care with other endocrinological interventions. Still, it looks like this area of interest is going to be tested soon. Well, that's it for this month's Journal Club. If you want to read some more in-depth details of these journals or look at some of the other articles I haven't discussed, come to the Critique Journal Club and have a look and read the papers for yourself. I'll see you next month. Goodbye. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.